Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, I'll be talking to Andrew Radiver, Philip Parr, and Allison Hart about maximizing volunteer resources during the COVID-19 response. Just to give you a little bit of background about our guest today, Andrew Radiver is retired municipal law enforcement. During his 30 years in law enforcement, he worked as a police lieutenant and a police reserve director. The police reserves are a volunteer police force within the police department, so he has experience managing volunteers. For the past 40 years, he's been a member of the voluntary Alameda County Search and Rescue Team, and he's currently working there as a deputy reserve. He also works as a voluntary wilderness ranger for the U.S. Forest Service. Phil Parr is a retired chief of the New York City Fire Department, and he worked as the deputy director of the New York City Office of Emergency Management. He also worked on disasters declared by the President of the United States as a FEMA Federal Coordinating Officer for 11 years. Both Phil and Andrew are LSU and CBRC instructors. We also welcome Allison Hart. Allison is recently retired at the rank of captain after 20 years with the City of Berkeley Police Department. For about 20 years, she's been a member of CARDA, which is the California Rescue Dog Association, which is a volunteer organization that trains and deploys search and rescue dogs on searches for missing people throughout California. She's currently the vice president of that organization, and she's also been involved in the Alameda County Search and Rescue for about 18 years. So we thank all of our guests today for their service, and thank you for um, providing your insight today on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is our third podcast, um, so we're really excited to have you uh, here today to talk about volunteers. Um, I think this will be a really interesting topic for our audience, so thank you again. So to start us off, uh, you guys have a lot of experience with volunteers, obviously. Um, so I'd like us to begin by discussing the different types of volunteers. Andrew, if you could um, answer that one for us. Certainly. Well, there's, there's a couple different categories we might look at when we're talking about uh, volunteers. Uh, the first one is a uh, spontaneous or convergent classification, if you will. And these are volunteers that uh, show up uh, kind of unannounced um, or, or uninvited, if you will, uh, in response to a disaster. Uh, they'll see what's happening in the media, they'll see that perhaps there's a, a need for services, and they show up. Oftentimes we see this happen, uh, it, there's a, a missing child, people want to come down and help, and, and they, they show up um, helping to help out with the, the search for the missing child type of thing. So that's one classification. Uh, the other one is a more of a, a governmental distinction, if you will, and uh, that is volunteers that either are affiliated or non-affiliated. The affiliated are ones that are previously established already. Uh, they are already on a team, have been uh, receiving training, and already have some sort of a rank structure or supervision. So they show up 
as an established volunteer. They're already affiliated with an organization. It doesn't necessarily need to be governmental. It could be non-governmental or NGOs, non-government organization. It could be a faith-based organization, social. Lots of different groups have volunteers, but they're already established. They know their jobs and they, they come with uh, some sort of training. And then the unaffiliated would be any other category. And just to add to what Andrew said, um, Ashley, sometimes we have uh, convergent or unaffiliated groups. So just as uh, individuals, just as we have individuals that might join, we may have a group. So it might be a church group that may have not have coordinated with other volunteer groups, but they see a need in their community and they do phenomenal jobs, but they see a need in their community and, uh, and they try and meet that need. Um, so we can have a group that's unaffiliated or convergent that meets just for that disaster because they recognize me. Um, and what are some examples that you've had in the past of working with these different uh, kinds of volunteers um, in your experience? So I could talk about a few different types of, uh, uh, of experiences that I've had with volunteers. And, and the first thing, and I think, and I know Allison and um, Andrew, who are both volunteers in their own right, uh, uh, agree with me that it's great that when Americans see a need in their communities, they want to get out there, they want to help, they want to give whatever they can, their time, their resources, uh, and they just want to be part of the solution, and that's uh, fantastic. Um, I'll give you one example um, of, of working with uh, volunteers. I'm not sure if you want me to refer talk about the World Trade Center or Katrina. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with Katrina. So I was, uh, I was new with FEMA when uh, Katrina went off. Uh, I was in Louisiana initially. I was in uh, Olin's Parish and in St. Bernard Parish, uh, two massively hard hit uh, areas in our country at, at what was at the time the largest disaster that we'd ever had. And it was phenomenal to see people come from all over the country and they provided things like feeding, they provided things like clothes, it's interesting that most of these folks that came in were part of larger associations, very well organized. Um, Andrew mentioned um, um, the VOADs, which are Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, or COADs, uh, Community Organizations Active in Disaster. Really uh, very organized. They, they had done this before. Uh, they repaired people's homes. They fixed roofs. Uh, we even had individuals come down. Uh, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work when they weren't affiliated, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But phenomenal jobs that they did in uh, providing relief during Hurricane Katrina during some of the hardest hit places that we've had in the country. Yeah, certainly uh, during uh, several of the fire responses we have had here in California, and, and these have been devastating fires that have wiped out entire towns or, or regions, we see that there is a, a large affiliated volunteer response all through a call-up process, so they're, they're deployed officially. But there's also a kind of a social response where people who, for example, are um, a chefs or run a restaurant maybe can't serve their community now because of the impact of the disaster, but yet they still have staff and they still have food. So what they'll do is they'll come out and set up a, a curbside cafe or bring food in or cook for the volunteers that are already serving in a more perhaps active role. So they, these kind of, they're convergent volunteers, but they're actually serving a very important need, feeding staff that's already out there, paid or unpaid. So the, they're kind of social responses. They're, they're not necessarily called out, but yet they're very valuable and, and, and helpful. 
Yeah, I would add that I believe the nature of the disaster dictates the response. Because Andrew spoke about the fires we've had the past several years and even going past the past two years with the big fires. Like, for example, livestock is being people that live in more rural areas, so the livestock is impacted. So there's groups that have volunteered and are now more formally formed that will respond um, to move the livestock to a different location, someplace that's safe. So it's a very fluid uh, response, but they've become more organized over the years, and that's just based out of need. Great, thank you. Um, and sort of going off of that, um, I'd imagine that there are some differences between the volunteers that you're seeing now sort of in the wake of a pandemic, which is pretty unique situation versus the kinds of volunteers you've seen in the past. Is that true? Um, and what's the, what's different about these volunteers you're seeing now versus what you've seen um, in past experiences? Um, Andrew, you wanna take that? Yeah, Ashley, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, certainly, we are in unique times with the pandemic. And what we're seeing here on a, on a national, perhaps even an international basis, is that the pandemic, COVID-19, uh, may be particularly uh, uh, brutal against vulnerable populations, senior citizens, uh, elderly people, which is typically our volunteer surplus, uh, people who are retired, uh, who have time, spend more time volunteering, but at a time when the pandemic is at its worst and you need volunteers, the very people that would typically be volunteering can't because they're at risk. So it's an interesting um, uh, kind of a, a dichotomy there, if you will. So what we're seeing here is that they, the volunteers may switch the ability to serve. So rather than serving out in the community, they may be serving from their homes. Uh, whether they're making meals or, as we've seen good examples, they're, they're making homemade masks or um, suturing up gowns or whatnot to provide out in the community for other first responders' health care uh, to use. So they're, they're still able to serve. So I think the pandemic is interesting in the fact that it might limit certain volunteers because of their age, but also provides other opportunities for them. Yeah, also uh, it's interesting, we're seeing a lot more uh, medical folks, folks who maybe are retired, who have some medical training. Interesting thing here is, generally speaking, they're not expected to uh, deal directly with COVID patients. Uh, generally what happens is, uh, is healthcare organizations, public health facilities, hospitals, and places that can use them, use them for their patients that don't have COVID-19 to free up kind of more current or specially trained or making sure folks who are really up on uh, handling PPE, their personal protective equipment, deal with the COVID-19 patients. So a lot of folks who have previously worked in the medical field are volunteering. And also I wanted to stress, one of the things that's important is, uh, and just as Andrew said, we have people volunteering in this country every day, even when we don't have a disaster. They're, they're helping at risk populations uh, with feeding the elderly, et cetera, et cetera. All those things still need to happen. Uh, and they are happening. And New York City has a huge, huge um, uh, uh, need uh, for people now they're at home. They're not going maybe to soup kitchens or to uh, food lines. And so some of the volunteers are, since New York is a vertical city, that's Brooklyn behind me, not as vertical as, uh, as Manhattan, but it's, um, but it's still a vertical city. So now instead of folks maybe going to one location, a centralized location where folks with those needs come to them like food pantries, uh, New York City is asking them to go out 
uh, through a process which you'll discuss, but they're asking them to go out and deliver those foods and necessary items to them, like the uh, homemade mass that Andrew's talked about as well. I think what's really unique about um, people volunteering during the pandemic now is that they're, you're seeing people who never would have thought to volunteer and aren't volunteering in a more formal manner, but they're finding something that they're good at, like we've talked about the mask, um, and they're jumping in and serving in many different ways than we've seen before. And also they're seeking, they're seeing the need and they're seeking out the established like skills to the soup kitchens and, and whatnot. So I think people are, are finding ways, whether they're traditionally what we've seen or in new and unique ways, and people are feeling like they can contribute. Yeah, that's the thing I found is really inspiring about um, how things have, have shifted in response to the unique situation. Um, instead of fighting against it, really adapting um, in terms of how we can help, which I think is really, really cool and very interesting. Um, so thank you. Um, so sort of to transition a little bit, uh, coordination is an incredibly important thing to talk about when discussing volunteer resources and how to maximize them. Um, in any large crisis, there's a lot of uh, well-intentioned people who really wanna help. So we wanna explore how volunteers are coordinated during such critical times and some best practices for doing so. So to start out, um, I thought it might be interesting to discuss, like if you had, a, if you had to think of an ideal situation for coordin coordinating volunteers, just very big picture, what would that look like? Um, Phil, do you wanna start us off here? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. So uh, a lot of us are familiar with the, the different phases of emergency management. One of them is preparedness. And during peacetime, kind of we're right in the middle of a, a huge medical response right now. So, but during peacetime, when we don't have that response, people will say, hey, you know what? I think I'd like to help out when there's an issue, whether it's a, and we're used to natural weather events, um, you know, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, those types of things. But if people uh, will contact one of those uh, larger organizations or one of those organizations affiliated with a large organization, a system because it's really a committee. Uh, the volunteers that work, they're very, very inclusive. They sit down at the table together. They recognize what their needs and they see what each organization has to bring. Or sometimes it's run more directly through the local emergency management office. The, very often there is usually a volunt voluntary liaison, uh, liaison at the county or city or state emergency management office. And they insist, they assist uh, these smaller organizations to kind of come together, to work together, to pool their resources, identify what strengths they have, identify where the needs are, and how they're going to meet those needs. So it's it's really great during what we'll call peacetime, which we're not in right now, but during that preparedness phase, if, if that coordination piece, even a volunteer plan is important, because without that plan sometimes, um, things can get very disorganized, and a lot of time spent uh, during the middle of a disaster, instead of responding the way folks need us to respond, we're trying to organize. And that really, if at all possible, should be done prior to uh, prior to an event. Yeah, Phil, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and agree with you on that for sure. I, I think that the key here, Ashley, is, is having some sort of pre-plan. Even if it is, and say for instance, at a, at a county fair or some sort of other type of community event, having a booth that says with a big sign, volunteer check-in and then having all the other staff that's there knowing that, hey, if you're a volunteer, 
send them over to this booth. That's a plan. But in, in the, the, I think the, the, the key thing is having a plan in the absence of one, then the volunteers uh, won't be perhaps utilized to their, their, their most efficient use. Or the other thing is they might take independent action and actually work against the common goal. So having some sort of preparedness plan, whether it's right on site or as Phil suggested, something that's something that's happened well in advance, I think those are actually best practices, having some sort of plan to deal with volunteers. All right. Um, so you mentioned having a plan is super important um, when going into a volunteer um, or going into a situation where volunteers are going to want to help. Um, so, you know, one way to do this is getting involved in uh, a volunteer organization, establishing some affiliation there. So why is it important for volunteers um, to affiliate themselves with an organization that will um, coordinate them? Um, Allison, do you want to start us there? Sure. I, I if you put some thought into it and you're prepared ahead of time, you're involved with an organ, you're going to find yourself involved with an organization where your interests lie and where you perhaps have some expertise. And then in doing so, you go through training and you, you become competent in your skills. Uh, for example, with the search dogs, that's years and years of training. When we're needed, like we're not necessarily using the pandemic response, yet people are still getting lost. And so there's a need for us to keep up our skills and to be prepared. And that may look a little, look a little different with the PPEs and whatnot, but we're expected to do that. Um, with the county sheriff's office, which most people are affiliated with who are on the search dog team, um, you know, you, you're expected to do many different things. And so perhaps the expertise is coming in. But regardless, you've got that training up front, you're, you know how you can be used and you're prepared to do so. And I, that's very important. And then you can, um, you can be more effective in your response and more useful. I think you're absolutely right on that, Allison. It's it's interesting, and she she brought up the the um, the the example of using the search dogs. If if um, I knew of some people uh, who had search dogs, and uh, but they weren't affiliated, I would have to call each and every one of them and see if they're available and can they come out and help with this this search for the missing child or whatever. Rather than if I could call an established organization, I make one phone call to, to CARTA, the search dog group, or I make one phone call down to uh, the, the church, the local community church. Hey, do you have someone who can come out? So rather than having to call several people, um, I can call one individual to, to bring out an affiliated um, a group of volunteers. I think that's the benefit, Ashley, is that if, if people want to help and they affiliate themselves within an organization, whether it be faith-based, community-based, governmental, uh, then it's, it's, they get deployed as a group. There's, a, there's a, a representation of the organization there versus you coming out as an individual, uh, a John Doe. Well, I, I don't know what your skills are, but yet if I call CARTA, if I call a, a FEMA volunteer, uh, um, a disaster medical volunteer that's associated with FEMA, I know that there are there are standards that are already in play. There's been some sort of prior training and some sort of supervision 
And so it's, it's, it's a more efficient, more actually more professional response being affiliated. Not to say that the, the volunteers who are unaffiliated aren't of value. They certainly are. And especially in a just in time uh, type of um, scenario, but it's, it's more advantage to um, the responders on the ground to be utilizing those that are already affiliated. Yeah, also, and, and Andrew and Allison really hit the nail right on the, uh, right on the head. One of the things also, it gives volunteer organizations an, an, an ability and time to identify people's strengths. We have a huge amount of talented people in this country, um, retired engineers, uh, just so many folks with so much expertise, and wouldn't it be great as they're sitting around and they identify needs, that the, particularly needs that the government can meet if they say, one organization says, hey, we have a core cadre or a core of folks that could do X, Y, and Z. And another organization says, hey, that's the issue that we've been having. We can, they actually go across the table and they'll plug that expertise in. I can give you a quick example. Um, one of the things I did uh, since I was still with the New York City Fire Department during 9-11 is um, I was uh, uh, one of the chiefs responsible for the uh, staging area. And uh, as it, you, the outpouring from this country between material and personnel and everything was phenomenal. It was just, it was just fantastic. Uh, one, of the, one of the responsibilities that I had, which was a totally new responsibility for someone who had worked in the field of fire emergency ground, uh, I, I felt very confident in doing that, was now I had to set up an organization to uh, feed, clothe, uh, fit test a mess they had never seen before on 4,000 firefighters a day coming back and forth from the World Trade Center. Um, and to, to put it bluntly, I had a team of folks, I had uh, company officers, I had firefighters. We had no idea what we were going to do as, as we were getting all this material and resources dumped on us. Completely new job. I had 20 years in the job, but this was, I was a babe when it, when it came to this. We were very fortunate that one of the volunteers that came to us from the Office of Emergency Management, she comes up to me and she says, Chief, she says, you know, I spent 30 plus years managing and putting together flea markets and organizing flea markets because she saw I had no idea what I was doing and how I was going to be able to do this. And she says, why don't you let me handle it and, and take it over? And you want to know something? In four hours, we were able to feed uh, reclothed because uh, firefighters at this time in New York City were only had structural firefighting gear, which was not appropriate for working at the World Trade Center construction site. We were able to feed folks, outfit them with new equipment. We were able to build a whole area for them to be fit tested uh, with their masks. It, I, I couldn't believe the organization, and it came from someone who was a retired uh, woman uh, and who was just phenomenal and really, really was one of the unsung heroes of that event. So. Uh, that expertise is necessary. That expertise is, uh, is great when we can pull it, but it's really good if we can organize that so we know what we have kind of uh, what tool in the toolbox. That's great. That's very a very cool story. You just never know in a group what sort of maybe niche experience that you would never really think of would really be a game changer in that situation. That's, that's really cool. Um, so communication is obviously massively important uh, element to coordinating volunteers, um, especially in such a, a complex situation that's complex to manage. Um, how do we communicate the message of, you know, trying to affiliate or um, find the right place for you to fit in as a volunteer? How do um, agencies and groups communicate this to 
um, potential volunteers in order to be as efficient as possible in this situation. Uh, the importance of having a pre-plan uh, really can't be um, underestimated. Having a local protocol to follow, I think, is important before the disaster or the need hits. The other part of that, of course, is doing an assessment of what are the needs? What do you anticipate uh, there will be a need for? Uh, so putting that into place. But the other thing I think, and perhaps is most important, is rather than having competing interests, uh, several different governmental organizations or whomever asking for volunteers, that there, there perhaps is a, um, a joint message, and I hate to rely on the, the, the NIM system, but it actually really works here, the National Incident Management System, including ICS, the, the, the having a joint message which says, okay, one person will ask for volunteers, and here's what we are asking for. So rather than having several people asking for a competing interest, you have one person asking for everybody, and perhaps even in, in a one area. You want to volunteer? Here's what we need call this phone number and we'll get you set up. Yeah, I think what Andrew says is exactly right. It's important to uh, be, have that in place ahead of time and how that's going to work. But I also think social media um, is a way to communicate with people now too. It might not be as comfortable for some generations, but younger folks, that's how they communicate. That's what they understand. And there's platforms like Nextdoor and just, many ways to communicate information out, but it needs to be, regardless of the, the method, the mes message needs to be the same and the coordination needs to be the same as Andrew was explaining. I, 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 I smiled when Allison said social media because I'm from that generation that doesn't really use social media. You know, I, I can use my computer and email, is that, that, that's good for me. But that's so true, that's how kids today, that, that is how they uh, uh, really get the message out. But there are so many organizations that we have now, established organizations that we have now that give folks with a variety of interests the ability to uh, volunteer. So a couple of other recommendations are Regardless of where you live, your local county emergency management office almost certainly has a plan. And if you want to volunteer, you can go on their website, regardless of where you are, whether it's a city, uh, county, or state, and they say, hey, I want to volunteer. They probably have a process in place. So I give you an example of New York City. New York City, when they want, uh, when uh, their, their primary way that they look for volunteers, at least uh, once directed by the city, because there's a, a, a dozens, if not uh, scores or hundreds of volunteer organizations, in New York City is they go to their CERT program. And if you go to New York City OEM's website um, and you want to volunteer, uh, they have a whole process. They have training for, for CERT program. New York State, same thing if you go onto the New York State web website. Um, so we encourage folks, and, and just think about some of the big organizations, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army. Um, um, there are church groups. There are so many organizations that if somebody really wants to volunteer, they they can. And, and the last thing I'm going to mention, which is so important during this time, particularly for folks who want to volunteer, uh, we know that COVID-19 is highly, highly contagious. And uh, one of the things that these larger, more established organizations can do is that they actually might be able to provide some of the personal protective equipment or PPE that volunteers may need to carry out their job. So if they're going to work in a soup kitchen or if they're going to be with other folks, these larger organizations have training. They generally have safety officers who will assist folks in being as safe as possible. Another advantage of, uh, of affiliating yourself with a more established organization. 
Hey, Phil, can I circle back with you uh, real quick? Uh, the CERT program, uh, could you go into that, what, what CERT stands for and, and how that's, I think that's from the FEMA level, right? And then down to local communities? Yeah, and those community emergency response teams, which are all over the country, by the way. Uh, I'm sure California has CERT teams. Uh, Louisiana has CERT teams. They are all over the country. Uh, those are folks that receive training, generally speaking, from a governmental or quasi-governmental authority. Um, and that's one way of volunteering. Uh, New York City really tries to leverage their CERT members and have them work with other voluntary organizations. But again, uh, that's if you want to volunteer and kind of have a quasi-governmental, uh, um, I'll say, oversight. But there are communities. Uh, I'll give you another example. In, in, uh, in uh, I think it was Louisiana, um, two pop-up groups during Hurricane Katrina, uh, which I thought were interesting. Somebody saw that, hey, everybody's car was flooded. You know, everybody's car was flooded. So what did one group do? They said, how are people going to get to work? They actually started repairing bicycles. And people started taking bicycles to work. They recognized the need in their community, and it became huge, and it enabled the economy to be kickstarted again. Other communities, and again, it may have been Louisiana, where trees were killed uh, because of the saltwater um, destruction. Uh, they started replanting trees because they wanted their community to come back stronger and more beautiful than it was before. So it doesn't have to be a quasi-governmental entity. It could be a, a, a church or a religious group. It could be a community group. Uh, there's a variety of ways that folks uh, can really look to volunteer and leverage their skills. Yeah, great. And Phil, I can just add on to that, that, that CERT program, that Community Emergency Response Team, it, it's, a, it's a federal program, a federal curriculum, if you will, that local governments can adopt. It's community-based. So uh, citizens in neighborhoods, it, it's like, like a neighborhood watch, they join it, they attend training, and they get issued a helmet. Uh, isn't that right, Phil? And they get like a vest and, and some uh, tools. And it's designed that when there's a, a large emergency, earthquake, tornado, hurricane, like, like Phil was mentioning, they can assist at the neighborhood level. So they don't necessarily need a fire engine, but they might be able to still provide emergency service. But what we're seeing here, and I'll use California as an example, CERT teams who are trained to deal with earthquakes, hurricanes, and whatnot, we don't see them doing that now here in the pandemic. We see them delivering food baskets, boxes from the, the uh, food banks into cars of people who, um, who are stopping by to pick up groceries. And that's how they're being utilized. So it's, it's a, a non-traditional way, Ashley. They're trained volunteers affiliated, but they're being pressed into service in a very useful way, even though that's not what they're traditionally designed to do. Yeah, and just to jump on what Andrew said, is it's their willingness that they're, that they're, that's being leveraged because they're willing to do. And it's interesting, Andrew mentioned NIMS and ICS, and, and most of the folks who listen to these podcasts are in the business, they're professionals, but for those that aren't, uh, there's a national framework on how we manage events like COVID or other disasters, the National Incident Management System, Incident Command System. And these folks get training in that system so they understand where they fit in the process, very often they have some modicum of medical training, um, the safety training, which I, I can't stress this enough. Uh, they might be used to say, hey, when you're working in the street or if, if you're helping to clear debris, um, you might have to look for downed wires. Well, our safety constraints now with COVID are very different from things that folks have been trained with, but very often these CERT members and other uh, established voluntary organizations are getting that just-in-time training to keep their folks as safe as possible also. 
Thank you. Um, yeah, and that kind of, I mean, leads into that, my next question. Um, so since we're dealing with such a unique situation here and that we have a virus that's already spread to, I think more than 600,000 people in the US right now. So this virus is everywhere. Um, what are, and then I know we went into this a little bit, but um, what are the implications of coordinating volunteers during a time where there's an infectious disease outbreak? So what special uh, precautions need to be taken um, that maybe people aren't used to having to do? So a real good question and, and one that deserves attention because we, we don't want to, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, abuse or uh, to uh, expose to risk unnecessarily. So in, in today's pandemic, uh, universal precautions and social distancing need to be employed. That's, that's a given. Whether you're faith-based, whether you're search and rescue, dogs, whatever it may be, that has to happen all the time. So um, social distancing, this should be reviewed with volunteers before they actually start their, their service. And if possible, uh, either asking them to bring personal protective equipment, goggles, masks, gloves like that, or especially in the governmental setting, especially for professional first responders or governmental organizations, they should check with their, their local agencies, local protocols. Perhaps they actually should be providing that for volunteers who are in, in service. Uh, so those, those things that would be normally applied to the paid responders, mass universal precautions, social distancing, I think is, is really important. If we're dealing in a, in a medical situation, uh, we should make sure that whatever information we have in advance for that situation is given to the volunteers. If we know that they're going into a high-risk situation, they're perhaps dealing with somebody who is already in, in has a COVID-19, delivering food to, to a house that's, that's uh, on, under quarantine, this type of information should be made known to the volunteers. And, uh, and again, in the enforcement of those best practices of social distancing. I think part of it too is when you have groups like spread out over the state that yet belong to one group, it's just having those conversations. Like what are your special precautions? Uh, if you get called out on a search, you know, think about that and be prepared. You know, what are you going to have to do differently? Are you going to do anything different with your dog or are you going to, what equipment do you need special for yourself that you aren't going to, usually have and how is that practical in your deployment and just having that conversation and thinking about um, what is different that you're going to have to do or um, what makes sense within your scope is important to have so people can think about that ahead of time and be prepared. Yeah, and one of the other things is, and this is one of the advantages of, of going to a more official venue, is that there might be things that volunteers can do from home now. Right. So as an example, there are many municipalities that have lists of folks that they know are at risk populations. So instead of having to necessarily go visit them, it might be a matter of getting a, a call down list with a, a questionnaire that the local emergency management organization may have put together and say, hey, what do you need? Are you OK with food? Are you OK with medication? And then have a formal way of somebody going to deliver that to them, which may or may not be a volunteer. It might be the local police department, the CERT team. It might be uh, uh, it might be the fire department. But there are a variety of things that uh, we're learning how to work remotely now. And, and we're doing things from home uh, with the, the advent of computers, with telephones, with social media, which I still haven't uh, conquered yet. 
but we're learning to do things from home and do things remotely that we've never done before. And um, uh, volunteers might be asked to do that as well during this time in this particular event. Thank you. Um, so we touched on this a little bit, um, but I'd imagine, you know, with this situation, training becomes pretty important here. So can y'all explain to me a little bit about how just-in-time works? Yeah, you cut out a little bit. I think the question was, um, we're talking about just-in-time training? Yeah. yeah. So what happens is, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, this is, uh, like Andrew and like Allison, uh, we've been involved if you add up the decades we've been doing this, it's been a, it's a, it would be a big number uh, that we've been involved in public safety. Uh, but I know this is a first to me. I've had some experience with, um, with uh, uh, N1H1, which didn't come anywhere near what we're dealing with now. So a lot of organizations are playing catch up with making sure they have the right PPE and getting the right kind of information out. One of the big things, as an example, uh, and I'm not a medical professional, but one of the big things is uh, a lot of, of uh, folks are getting sick from surface touching. We may not realize it. We may think, hey, this is, we have to really worry about where the mask, with, which those things can be and are very important. But even just the training to know that the surfaces that we come in contact with uh, are a very high incidence of transmission of this disease is some of the kinds of training, some of the things that we've learned um, from respected, notable, and experts that we may have to look out for. So that just in trying that just in time training for COVID-19 uh, volunteers is critically important because we don't want to put more people at risk. The whole purpose is to put less people at risk. So that's just one aspect of that. Good, Phil. The 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 purpose behind uh, JIT or just in time training is to bring the individual up to speed on the current situation not to give them the entire semester's worth of here's the background and everything. This is, this is what you need to know today, right now, in order to be safe and fulfill the need. So that's what just-in-time training is. Uh, our, for our professional first responders listening, you would know this as a briefing or a tailgate, uh, tailgate safety briefing. So I, I just went through this yesterday. Uh, I was called out and not as a, a search, well, I was called out as a search and rescue volunteer, but not to do a search or a rescue, but to work in a warehouse for a point of distribution where we were giving out personal protective equipment to hospitals and whatnot as they came by. I've got no training in, in, in uh, driving a forklift or whatever I do now because yesterday I went through just-in-time training. Rat, don't run over your foot. So th this, this happened just yesterday. Uh, I show up in uniform, have all the, the supervision in place, and there's somebody there, a greeter, who has a whole flip chart, says, here's what we need to do today, here's how to do it. And then they kind of run a brief back where you are, you, you brief back to them what your job is, and so it's, it's a good lines of communication. So that's what just-in-time training is, is all about. It's bringing you up to speed on the current situation of what you need to know now, today, in order to fill the job. So shifting gears a little bit, um, we talked about a little bit about healthcare professionals. Um, so what is the process for, or as you've observed, what is the process for coordinating healthcare professional volunteers? So maybe people that um, are retired, uh, who are getting back to work as you know, a lot of healthcare workers are becoming ill um, after being exposed to COVID-19, how are their credentials verified? Are there systems in place for that? So 
Right. This is, is a little bit more higher risk when we're talking about uh, volunteers and, and the healthcare system because there's actually patient care taking place and not just with patients, but also record keeping and whatnot. So it's important that when volunteers actually, the closer they come to a patient or patient care, that they be um, vetted a, a bit more to make sure that they are in fact who they are and they have those skills. A best practice of that, of course, is having some sort of central location to receive volunteers and either having their credentials checked on site with a certificate, an ID card, something along those lines, or uh, perhaps having them submit their name uh, via a website, uh, such as I think in perhaps uh, New York is doing, and I know California is, where you, you submit your name and what your background is, and since it's a state website, they are able to check your licensing, your credentials right from there, and then they can verify that, and then they will go ahead and assign you uh, later on with a phone call to a site and that job schedule, that type of thing. All as a volunteer, you're being uh, non-affiliated, but you're being called out from retirement. So a couple ways to do it. One is to check on-site, checking your credentials, your permit, your licensing right there in a physical form, or if you have a local protocol or a state protocol that allows you submit your name or you sign up on a website and then it is checked electronically or by someone behind the scenes and then you're vetted that way. Yeah, we saw that in, in Katrina, just as uh, Andrew, um, or as we affectionately known as Rat, as, as we've seen in um, uh, Katrina, we had a, a, a lot of medical folks coming in and volunteering to assist. Uh, but even then, because there are certain legal standards of care, just as uh, Andrew mentioned, it is critically important that you follow that state's process. And each state has their own process. It might involve a little bit of digging, going to state websites, maybe State Department of Health to see if you're a nurse or if you're a doctor and you want to go to a particular state and volunteer. And it can be done. Uh, New Jersey, I think this was in the news, but New Jersey just received 200 paramedics from around the country. Uh, to assist with their with their COVID response. And that was done through that state system. Uh, I will tell you that when I worked in Katrina, we actually had a doctor whose license was suspended, who was coming down to assist in Katrina, and um, she was taken out in handcuffs uh, because it was against the law uh, what she was doing. So particularly on the medical side, on the medical front, uh, retired or active, please follow the state that you want to deploy to. Please follow what their process is for volunteering uh, in your particular field of expertise, particularly on that medical side. Yeah, Phil, I think you're exactly right on that. Volunteers in the healthcare system can be utilized to do things that are perhaps non uh, patient care related, uh, answering phones, filling out a checklist, uh, monitoring a door, carrying equipment back and forth. It's, it's para-healthcare, but it's not patient care per se. So I, I, again, I, I would suggest that, and as Phil was emphasizing, you're following the local protocols or the state protocols for vetting, but the closer we actually get to patient care, going hands-on patient care, it's definitely a best practice. Verify the credentials. Absolutely, thank you. Um, and sort of going off of that, um, utilizing different expertise in unique ways. Um, and maybe Allison, you could talk about this a little bit. Um, how can we think outside of the box in terms of how people of various skill sets can help uh, beyond sort of the, the their main function of what they're used to doing? So maybe um, like search and rescue or canine 
handlers, how, how can, um, what, where is their place in um, this pandemic response doing maybe something other than rescue? Yeah, I think we always have to be flexible, especially in times like extraordinary times when the need is different than what we're perhaps used to. Uh, we have to be prepared to do everything. And I think specific for the dog handlers, most of us are associated with our county teams, our county teams, and are prepared to help however we can. So there's definitely avenues where people can uh, help volunteer different spots. I think there's a lot of ways to get that message out generally as well. You know, churches, um, through our counties, if there's a specific need that could be, uh, you know, they can ask, is there anybody with specific expertise in this area? As long as there's an avenue, there has to be an avenue that's coordinated to get that uh, response, you know, a direction, of, of, a path to follow, rather through one organization to get people out in, in their appropriate areas. But there's, there's definitely ways that we could be useful now. I think that's great, Allie. Um, it's it's a, a interesting from the dog rescue side, um, and Allison and I were talking about this online, uh, or offline, I'm sorry. Uh, because of the, the, the shelter in place and the quarantines and whatnot, people are kind of feeling pent up. So we find that even in, in these times where you're supposed to be staying at home, people are actually going out and, and needing rescue and still getting lost. And this is kind of a, a unique example. So not only are they have to be prepared to volunteer, but they need to be ready to deal with a pandemic. So search and rescue volunteers, ham, ham radio operators, dog handlers need to come with the skill set. So they should be doing their part to make themselves available and helpful, having the PPE, having a training to deal with the social distancing and be ready to go when that call comes in. Um, I also think that um, finding a way to, to provide the service, because what we're, we're finding here is that this is a long term, this is the marathon or the ultra marathon, not the, the, the sprint. So at some point, how can perhaps volunteers relieve the first responders as this, the pandemic goes on or, or um, a social distancing or shelter in place is prolonged? How can they pick up the slack in terms of food deliveries, in terms of getting food from its source, uh, from uh, uh, the farms or whatever, and just, just providing transportation and getting it to the points of distribution? Those are non-technical things, but it's, it's finding a way to be valuable and relieve paid staff so they can get, get some rest, uh, some rehab, if you will, some rehabilitation. Yeah, just, just to briefly add, I think Allison and uh, Andrew really covered that well. Um, just remember, we don't know what the recovery is gonna look like from this event. We, we don't know exactly what it's gonna look like. This is, as Andrew said, this is not a sprint. This is a, gonna be a long process. So uh, it might be six months from now. There are other needs as we start to recover this, or three months, whatever that, whatever that time period is, there might be other needs that we have in this country where there may be a call for folks to come out and assist. And also, I did want to say, um, you know, let's be good neighbors. Let's look around. Do we know as somebody in an at-risk population that lives on our block or across the street or in our building? Um, and maybe we can stop by and say, hey, do you have everything that you need? But just being good neighbors is also 
uh, very important, taking care of those folks that uh, even if we don't know them personally, they're close enough to us where we can uh, have a hand in helping them stay safe. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's that's very all very good points. So let's move into sort of my looking forward questions since we're we're sort of there. Um, if you could look into the future, how do you think that volunteers can be used down the line as we get more in um, in the thick of this uh, coronavirus response? Uh, maybe as paid paid responders get fatigued or get sick themselves. Sure, and I think that's a I think that's a, a great question because um, as we've already mentioned and some of it we've covered, uh, but think about things like uh, again people over 60 or 65, people with exist pre-existing conditions. It may be, even though the general population might be moving out and about and maybe kind of rubbing shoulders a little bit more than those at-risk populations, they're still gonna need care, they're still gonna need medicine, they still might need trips to the doctor, they still might need a variety of things. And if you make yourself available to, those, to do those type of things with the proper equipment, the proper PPE, the proper training, um, that might be one area, for instance, where COVID-19 volunteers down the road might be utilized. Uh, again, other areas with, with bringing supplies and stuff like that, as Andrew talked about, uh, kind of those ancillary duties to, to keep those frontline workers, those hospital workers, those police officers, those firefighters, EMTs, uh, kind of online, relieving them of some of the things that maybe might be more mundane so that they can continue to do the stuff that they've been trained for might be something very important. That's great, Phil. And, and Ashley, to, to kind of add on to that, moving forward here, we are seasonally still having uh, disasters or other events that will happen around the nation. Every borough, parish, county, state has its own unique seasonal challenges, whether it be hurricane season, tornado season, as we're going through now, all of this is gonna continue to happen all the way in, into winter. So looking forward, I think volunteers that are already affiliated should look to make themselves useful and viable. How can they function in their, in their particular uh, subject matter expertise during the pandemic? Likewise, for our professional uh, responders, utilizing volunteers, if we don't have a plan now, perhaps starting one are starting the process of having a reporting area, a website, establishing local protocols, contacting or, or, or uh, uh, eliminating a, uh, a volunteer coordinator, someone to handle that. Because as this drags on, and it will, uh, volunteers may become more essential. And having a plan already in place and being able to act upon that, I think it's going to be a best practice and something we're going to rely on, especially when we see seasonal changes come up. Yeah, I think that's something um, important. Um, I like to think about maybe the places who that, um, you know, maybe more rural locations that haven't been hit as hard yet, but you know, that's, that's um, I don't think that's something to neglect thinking about. You wanna think about when, the, when these places are hit, that's, that's not if, that's when, um, how can we utilize volunteers in a smaller community because um, there are plenty of those throughout the country that maybe aren't thinking about that yet. So that's something that's very important and could be a uh, real help for sure. I just like to end our interviews um, by asking, is there anything that maybe I didn't ask that sort of popped up in your head that you want to mention um, something 
that you just want to cap off this episode with before we wrap up here? What I think I'd like to add in is that where, where do we go from here? And I would like to emphasize establishing a plan now is better than trying to do it into the future and having anticipating the need for volunteers. Or um, Phil, like we were talking about before, maybe um, uh, uh, additional resources might be to check the, the, the FEMA website or uh, the state website for volunteering, something, something along those lines. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that too, Andrew. Um, some of the folks, one of the things we didn't cover, which um, uh, sometimes people may not be able to give up their time for whatever reason, they might be still very involved in work with taking care of their families, uh, but they will still want to give and they may have the resources to donate. And one of the things that uh, all voluntary organizations try and encourage is to research an organization and instead of donating things like clothes, and in some cases even food, it's better to donate financially if you can do that, if you have the resources to do that. So looking for a, a, um, a, a very well-vetted voluntary organization um, and making a financial contribution rather than a uh, uh, rather than a um, uh, uh, things like clothing um, might be something that uh, folks want to think about. Although there are some places set up for uh, food, as an example, like food kitchens. I'm sure they certainly or or, or food pantries they certainly accept donations of uh, food. But but if we're looking to give and we have the wherewithal, you might want to consider a financial donation as well if you cannot volunteer. All right. Is there anything else? Any last thoughts? Um, as, as this, um, as we discussed before, as things continue on, having a plan in place to utilize volunteers uh, is really a best practice. And, and having that plan in place now is going to be much more effective than trying to do it later on down the line when the need becomes uh, uh, perhaps more pressing. So establishing a plan, and setting that up and having joint messaging, all are effective ways to use volunteers. And volunteers can be used to handle the secondary or tertiary missions to relieve first responders, whether it be social issues or check-ins or administrative, but essentially non-skilled things can actually be a really benefit for the first responder. So utilizing those volunteers, uh, providing just-in-time training, PPE, uh, the, the joint uh, check-in sites, I think all, all of those are a good way to be more effective and all of us will stand a better chance of uh, getting through this pandemic. I think it's also critically important that you have a, a plan for yourself personally and your family because if you don't have that in place then you're not going to be able to volunteer uh, or help out in any way and most people do want to be able to find that niche. But, um, if your family's not squared away, then you're not going to be able to devote the time or energy uh, to helping others. That's a really good point. Thank you so much uh, for coming on our third podcast episode. I think this is a really important and very interesting conversation, and um, I think it's going to yield some good results. So thank you so much. So, so much. Ashley, thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Andrew, Phil, and Allison for coming on the podcast and offering their extremely valuable insight into leveraging volunteer resources during this time. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you next week.